This episode of the Gondrepreneur Podcast is made possible by 420 friendly service providers in the Gondrepreneur Business Directory. If you need professional help with your business, from accounting to legal services to consulting, marketing, payment processing, or insurance, visit gondrepreneur.com slash businesses to find service providers who specialize in helping cannabis entrepreneurs like you. Visit the Gondrepreneur Business Directory today at gondrepreneur.com slash businesses. Hey there, I'm your host, T.G. Brandfault, and thank you for listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast, where we try to bring you actionable information and normalize cannabis through the stories of gondrepreneurs, activists, and industry stakeholders. Today, I'm joined by Travis Howard. He's the founder of Shift, who also as an attorney helped the first wave of cannabis companies in Colorado. He founded Kind Reviews, now Pot Guide, and Drew green dream cannabis in boulder in 2009 and 2010 respectively in addition to his consulting business he took part in various ancillary startups including patient education staffing physician services and wholesale exchanges a ton of hats uh in this space how are you doing this afternoon travis i'm doing well tim thanks for having me appreciate you Really, really delighted to have you on. Uh, you, you have a huge uh, breadth of experience. Um, but before we get into sort of the details about what you're doing now, uh, tell me about yourself. Uh, How did you end up in the cannabis space? Well, uh, I like to say, you know, we learned our macroeconomics and I've been a, a demand side cannabis guy for most of my life. And, uh, you know, kind of 2009 dispensary started opening up and I was uh, interested in getting in there. I've had neck and shoulder issues from various uh, car accidents and football and the rest of it. Talked to a doctor qualified as a, as a patient and started meeting some of these folks uh, and wanted to help spread the word. Uh, also, there were some that, that weren't very reputable or good. That all led into to kind reviews uh, that I founded with my brother and, um, you know, one thing led to another. I saw what was happening and I wanted to participate and uh, found some some ways in and some folks to to work with on, you know, all the various items that you had uh, listed you know, previously. So when you went to law school, did, did you was that your focus? Did you say, hey, I, I want to focus on, you know, uh, cannabis or the cannabis industry as it ended up? Uh, no, not at all. Um, you know, the cannabis industry is, to me, it's just another outcry of, of all entrepreneurial pursuits. And I went to law school um, specifically to become a better entrepreneur and to become a business attorney that could help other people entrepreneur. You know, I, I love cannabis and I love the industry. Uh, I think there's a lot of stuff that we still have to do from getting people out of jail to, to full normalization. Um, but underneath that, you know, I really am passionate about entrepreneurialism and how if we create more entrepreneurs, we're unplugging people from the corporate system. They're no longer batteries. They're their own machines. They're making good decisions for their employees, for their communities, because, you know, they need those people to support their business. And so I just think the more entrepreneurs we have, the better community stewards we have, the better communities we have to, for our kids to grow up in. Uh, and I think it's a more healthy uh, economy. You know, people diversify their portfolios. I don't think we should be running the, the size of our economy off of just Fortune 500s, you know, and, and we've seen that move up in the scale. So that that was my drive in, you know, the middle 2000s, the early 2000s when I went into law school was uh, I wanted to empower myself and others uh, through entrepreneurialism. That just bled into cannabis because when I was practicing law, um, you know, I, I got out of law school and I went and helped my wife and her parents' company. I uh, was working with special needs uh, speech therapy, and um, they were going through some transitions. And so I went down there and did some director of operations internationally, and ended up co-seeing on the, the the business there. And when I came out of of that and moved back to Colorado, I hung my shingle uh, to to do the business law and the people that were calling. Remember, all the businesses were crashing. There weren't a lot of people starting new stuff. This is 2008, 2009. And early 2009 to mid-2009, I started getting a lot of calls into my law office for 
people that wanted to come from the underground and black market into the, at that time, technically gray market, although it really was white under the Colorado Constitution. But they were looking for leases, partnership deals, you know, uh, operating agreements and, you know, everything that you would want in a normal business. But most of the big business law firms weren't touching that platform. And the early activist attorneys that laid the, the groundwork for us, the, you know, at that time, there was the, the Rob Corey's and the Warren Edsons and, and, and many more that, you know, my apologies to them for not uh, for stating their names, but they, all those guys that were out there fighting for so many people, they were pre- predominantly criminal lawyers, constitutional lawyers, lawyers that we needed in the space. But there weren't a ton of business attorneys that were willing to, to step up. And, um, you know, Vicente Cedarberg at this point is one of the more famous law firms. Christian Cedarberg, you know, went to law school with me. It was a year before me, and he had been focused on business. And so there was just a couple of us at the time, and I started meeting all these, these folks that were, frankly, getting rooked. It, it, it's, it, the irony here, Tim, is that at that time period, you had a lot of business people that were willing to take risk. The ones that I saw were predominantly from the real estate, either brokers, developers, owners, that you remember the the economy was tanking. So auto was down at the time and real estate and development was down at the time, generally in the economy. And so you had a lot of people that had previously been in the real estate world that were now looking to join forces or move their real estate property or some of the cash that they had saved that they were going to put into a development into cannabis. Well, these folks coming into cannabis were so-called, you know, black market or illicit, the people that, you know, the business community had been looking down their nose at. But what I actually saw in 2009 and early 2010 was a whole lot of real estate sharks preying on good-natured mom-and-pop people that wanted to come in. And that is where I actually stepped in for some of my clients. And, and I don't want to overstate what, what I did. I was just one small cog in the wheel. Um, but for my clients, we worked on a lot of bringing them up to equal representation and, and acumen uh, for these new partnerships that they were forming. So you say, you know, you, you hung your shingle, which is one of my favorite turns of phrase, uh, turns of phrases. And how did people find out about you? I mean, was it word of mouth? Was it something that you actively advertised and gave out your card to uh, cannabis business owners? I, I did. It was it was interesting because, you know, at the same time I was doing that, my my little brother um, had called me and said, listen, he's like, I bought these domain names. I had Colorado marijuana reviews and I have kind reviews. He goes, I was out in California visiting a friend and somebody mentioned this a website where you could like check out if the weed was good. And I was like, wait, what? And I, you know, I'd come out of tech earlier and during law school, I'd started a company called Dealers Link with a couple of my friends that was a software were exchanged in the auto industry. And so Tim called me and he said, um, you know, I know, you know, in tech, can you help me do something here? And I looked it up and I was like, that would be awesome. Like, you know, I already got my patient card. Let's go and review these things, start this as a business. So as I was going in and meeting dispensary owners and asking them, buying samples and telling them that I was going to review this stuff online. Sometimes I did it blind. Sometimes I let them know uh, so that they could give me any background information. I always gave, you know, an honest review. But that's when they're like, well, who are you? Why are you doing this? Well, I, you know, I'm a business attorney here in the area, but I'm passionate about cannabis. And this is something that I'm doing in my spare time. Well, three, four times being in there, all of a sudden, those individuals were calling me back being like, hey, I know you mentioned you were an attorney. Would you be willing to work with me? You know, would you would you I, I can't get anyone else to take the business. Then word of mouth spread. This was a close-knit community. This is back when dispensaries were open under zoning laws. You had a business license or a sales tax license, and that was it. The state of Colorado hadn't written their regulations yet. And, you know, growers were growing in their basement with patient cards. And, you know, it was what we called the backpacker days where they were packing in. They'd show up with their backpack with five pounds of weed and, you know, go down Broadway, what we were calling Broadsterdam or the Green Mile at the time. And, Hey, do you want to buy any of my wares? It was, you know, traditional, you know, marketing, guerrilla marketing at the time. So the word spread through those individuals that, you know, that I was open for business and willing to do 
um, you know, work. At, it, truthfully, at that time, I probably could have served a lot more clients, but it was hard with conflict of interest because everybody knew each other. Everybody was working together, um, you know, and so we just needed more attorneys to come in. And, and luckily, a lot of brave souls did come in because back then the Bar Association had issued no information on whether they wanted you doing this, not doing this, whether you could be a patient, use cannabis course, all that stuff at this point uh, has been settled with the Supreme Court and the ethics rules and, and all that stuff. But I remember a time talking to my wife and rereading that oath of office I took when I became an attorney and I was reading it and I was like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be doing this, but this oath tells me that, you know, where there is, you know, the, the need, it is our duty and responsibility. And I, I looked at my wife, Beth, and I said, I can't imagine aside from, you know, a, a criminal death row case or life imprisonment, which could result out of some of this trafficking where an attorney would be needed more. There's a conflict between state law and federal law. They don't know what's going on. I was like, I, I think we have to do this. Uh, so I just followed my heart and my gut on that and, and that oath that I took. And then luckily the, the bar association eventually saw it the same way and said, yeah, we, we do need attorneys in, in this industry. This is something that's going to be important. Can you describe to me sort of the learning curve in those early days when, you know, the regulations are being released, right? So, you, so you're having to learn on the fly. Can you just sort of tell me, you know, how you manage that? Oh, my goodness. I had three desks in my office with every piece of paper uh, that came out of the, the Marijuana Enforcement Division uh, in that 2010 uh, run up to that, you know, in August 2010 is when everybody met down at the dog track, as we all called it, it was an old, you know, the racing track where they had put their first offices and everyone got in line to submit their first applications. But the rules were coming out, you were reading the Senate bill, you were reading the House bill HB 1284. I'll never forget those that letter and number uh, combination. Uh, you know, I, I lived it and breathed it. But on top of that, you had all these local districts. So I think what most of the attorneys did was focus on Denver. Uh, and some on Boulder because Boulder kind of had its regulations, its first version before the state had regulations, which caused a whole nother slew of stuff in Boulder that we later had to clean up as a as a community. Um, but it, it was difficult. We were highlighting stuff every day. You were checking the website to see if any new um, you know clarifications. I remember I had Dan Hartman at the time. Um, uh, Mr. Seckman, there were there were numerous people at the MED that I had their cell phone in my cell phone on speed dial, and I was calling and asking questions. And back then, they picked it up directly uh, and answered questions for the attorneys because they knew if they gave the attorney the information that it was better than taking, you know, then I could talk to my 40 clients versus having all 40 call them directly. Um, and so it was just a lot of working together. And I know that, you know, over the years, some of the industry has felt like the MED has worked against them, some for them, the rest of it. But in those early days, when none of us really knew exactly what was going on, uh, I will, you know, say for, you know, on the defense of the Department of Revenue, they were very open and willing to talk to us and, um, you know, walk through that stuff, because it was a, it was a series of landmines, you know, and a lot of people lost their businesses, because of some false step that they thought that the rule said this and didn't mean that and this person was eligible but not and it was it was it was interesting at the time that's for sure no dull moments <laughs> so tell me about what you're doing now about with with shift um shift at this point is a, a you know a tried and true cannabis brand. Um, I've run the gamut from doing consulting to you know business operation contracting we've done staffing. Uh, and and such. But um, I think the industry, about a year ago, um, I said, you know, I set out to help normalize the plant. Um, I felt like that happened to some degree uh, with a lot of people, you know, and, and other states coming down. Um, you know, I wanted to normalize the the business and the respect for the industry, which is why I quit practicing and, and went ahead and grabbed a license so that the peer group couldn't say, well, you're just doing it as an attorney to make money. You don't really believe in this. 
you, they couldn't say that, you know, they had to look me dead in the eye and be like, wow, you, you really do believe that this should, this is okay. Uh, Cause now you're an owner and you're doing it. And so when we went through all those processes about a year ago, I was like, look, there's, there's a ton of activists out there that are doing a great job. There are a lot of people that, you know, from the Steve D'Angelo's and, and the rest of them to the mom and pops that are in Colorado and, and the States around us. And now there is this massive wave of, you know, the last year, two years of the Canadian public companies, wall street, you know, big money funds, all the rest of this stuff. Now that we've got both of those bookends, what do I believe in the most? What was I passionate about at the beginning that I think that the industry still wants? And and that's, you know, on the consumer side. And that's when I really decided to push shift uh, with the tagline genuine cannabis into a CPG, a, you know, a consumer good uh, a, a branded products that, you know, I've got the same heart and the passion that any mom and pop that has been here. I mean, I've been smoking weed since the early 90s. I've been through the, the black market, the gray market, and now the white market. I've had my bank account shut down personally. You know, you can't get a 401k. I can't do five. 529s because all the broker dealers can't take me because my social security is on the, you know, the blacklist and all these other things. And on the flip side, being a business attorney and having worked at some bigger companies and see the business side, you know, I know that there's a combination that really is going to, to prove valuable for customers in the long term. And that is all the heart and the love of a brand that you can trust for products that you trusted before this stuff was even, uh, you know, in white market and for, you know, supply side, a stable business that runs like a machine, um, but with a heart, you know, it's, it, it, you can go and get a little bit of great cannabis from a bunch of different people, but can they supply your business all day, every day and take care of you of what you need to grow your business. And on the flip side, we've got a bunch of these big businesses that are just throwing money and machines over the top of it that don't have the heart, the passion and the soul, uh, that consumers want. And I, I just, for me, that is genuine cannabis, that is shift. And, you know, that's what I'm setting out to, to bring to the world. And we're doing that right now in about 40 or 50 dispensaries in Colorado. And we've got uh, three dispensaries open in uh, New Mexico. It's not um, long term, we're probably not a dispensary brand, even though we have those licenses down there, we're, we're really looking to be a brand that other retailers can count on. And, you know, Probably if they own a dispensary, they're passionate about the products and, and the use, and they want to know that they're going to get something from people that, that care as much as them. And, you know, that's the promise I'm making to retailers and to customers both. So, you, you know, you mentioned that, that you're also in, uh, in New Mexico, and, and now that you've experienced sort of these different markets, and in various formats, California, Colorado, New Mexico, uh, Maryland, a handful more via application and regulation work, uh, can you tell me about some of the key differences that, you know, the average consumer or the average citizen might not understand about uh, how the differences between the states? Yeah, I think that the main difference is the constituent that the program is supposed to support and take care of. And when you look at New Mexico, um, and certainly no offense to their Department of Health, uh, they've, they've busted their butt and tried very hard to, to produce good results. Um, it's difficult as a business down there, because it's clear the program is set up for patients. Everything was set up for the medical side, for the medical patient, for their needs. That's where the program stemmed from, and that's the foundational work. When you flash forward to some of the other states that we've worked in, especially uh, East Coast and Midwest states, it is clear who the programs are built for, regardless of anything they're touting about the patients. This is the Department of Revenue. That is the constituent. That is uh, who they are are working for. It's about generating tax revenue. It is about generating uh, profits in the corporations. About It's about ensuring that the people that come in to start those businesses that get awarded the licenses have the deep capital pockets, the acumen and the connections potentially to Wall Street. And, you know, it, it really is for the business community. Now, that's not to take away and say in some of those states that that program also dovetails and works really well for the patients or for um, the, you know, the recreational consumers. Uh, but in some programs, you know, you get online and Google unhappy medical patients and you'll find the states that the programs aren't really working for uh, 
the patients, but are working really well for, uh, you know, certain businesses. And I think, you know, probably one of the shining examples of that is, is Florida, where you have, you know, a handful of people that have those early licenses. Most of those licenses have flipped for 40, 50, $100 million to public companies. And there's patients all over the state that don't have, and for the longest time, didn't have access to enough product because a lot of those licenses hadn't even opened up and started producing or opening up dispensaries across the, the board when clearly there were a lot of other businesses that were willing and ready to open if they could get licenses, but no more were were issued. And so, you know, there's, again, you know, it, it's easy to throw stones in the industry. Everybody's got somebody that they're mad at and a scapegoat. And I try not to do that. It's you know, the old lesson I teach my kids, like, try to look at the other side, try to put yourself in their shoes. Um, but, you know, I, I, having been a patient myself for many years, uh, thankfully, I've, I've worked through some of my issues. But, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's tough, but I think that's the major discrepancy between states is, is this about the patients or is this about the business community, AKA the department of revenue who's collecting, uh, you know, revenue, but at the same time, Tim, I, I, you know, we all have to be honest, uh, even as activists and, 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 you know, people who care about this, you, this country normalizes things through profits. And I knew it back in 2010 that it wasn't going to be Sangrila. It wasn't going to be this, this perfect kumbaya moment that if we wanted to actually get what we really wanted, which was the world treating this as a plant uh, like anything else and, and putting it out there, that we were going to have to step into the language that the world, that this, this Western society normalizes things through, and that's profitability. And if the thing couldn't produce profits, if it couldn't produce results for Wall Street, that we weren't going to get uh, actual normalization. And, and it was sad, but I, I felt like it was true then, and I feel like it's true now. Um, that doesn't mean that I love it. It doesn't mean that I wanted it to go this way. But there, I was never confused about how I thought it was actually going to work out. Uh, if we were going to have 50 states with legal cannabis, I didn't think it was going to be, well, grow it at home and, and, and just, you know, let it be. I, I just never thought that that was how it was going to make it to all 50 states. You know, unfortunately, it's an honest and astute observation, man. Um, it, it, to, just today, the AP, uh, the Associated Press released this uh, sort of investigation, uh, noting that when recreational comes to uh, you know, medical states that the medical programs, you know, just plummet the, the patient count plummet. I mean, is, isn't that to be expected? And, and what are sort of the the what's what's going to happen you know what's what's the negative um what negative things are going to happen as that progresses you know i think it's i'm certainly not clairvoyant but i i think there's a couple things that that i've witnessed and and what i feel like is is going to continue to transpire certainly we know that of the original patient populations you've got really what I call the OTC market, which is people that, you know, they're, they're, they are treating themselves, but they're treating themselves for items that are probably less, um, you know, on a grading scale than what the program really thought of when they made uh, the, the patient program. Then you've got the, the patients that were clearly identified with the, the inception of the program. And then you've got more recreational users that have been able to talk to their doctors. And the doctors are like, you know what, I feel like this is a fairly benign substance. If this guy's telling me that it helps him, I'm, I'm fine with it. So you've got this three groups. So when a recreational does show up in an area, of course, that first group is probably going to be like, well, I don't want to go through the rigmarole of going to the doctor if I don't have to. The OTC market might stay as a patient. They might not because the recreational team is able to move forward. But what I think I've seen a lot uh, is that when the recreational comes in, the state, obviously, it, it doesn't look good to have a high tax and penalty on medical patients. You bring in children with afflictions, you bring in uh, adults with cancer, this sorts of things, and you set them on the stand, and then you put them on the news, and the state is trying to, you know, tax them. And it, that just doesn't look right, right? It's a bad look for politicians, they're not going to push it. So they're going to push where they're making their money on licenses, tax, excise the rest of it over to the recreational world. Well, 
these are communities that run on taxes. So they're going to be incentivized to either make those licenses easier to get, the regulations easier to work with, the investors and access to capital is going to be easier, so on and so forth. If you're a business investor and you're coming in off the sidelines and this wasn't your passion project, but you wanted to see where things are going, you're looking out there and you're going, well, recreational is moving forward. I believe that's going to look like alcohol on some level in the future. I know profits come out of there. What if the medical ends up going to the pharmaceutical companies long term? Well, if you're an investor with you know a million dollars or a hundred million dollars, which pool are you going to put that investment in? I don't want to fight big pharma, but I could be myself a new big alcohol. And so the capital comes into the recreational side. So the advertising, the branding, the product development, and that's not to say there's not some really great companies out there developing on the medical side. But if you look overall on where that cash is coming in and where the people, the new workforce coming out of alcohol, tobacco, wine, uh, food, food. Um, and all these other things that are going on CPG side that are coming in to do the, the marketing and the product development, they're going to be in the recreational space as well, because this is where they get to build a brand. And so, you know, when you see all of those things, uh, I do envision that long term, you're going to see more investment and product offering, which is only going to encourage more OTC patients to not go get their medical license because they can get the same products or better products. You know, looking at Colorado as an example, well, the medical or, you know, still was forcing you to be vertically integrated and doing the 70-30 rule and all of this stuff. Whereas when you're on recreational, people that were good at retailing got to do all their retail stuff. People that were good at growing, you had the lab start the process and you saw this division of people specializing. Well, you go into a lot of dispensaries that had a medical side and a recreational side, and there were more products offered on the recreational side because they could buy from any of the vendors that they wanted. And so I see that pattern occurring across the country, and I don't think that that pattern is going to necessarily stop. And, you know, I don't know. I, I have a lot of hope for the people that started out in the medical world that were willing to put their freedom on the line and, and come out and be that first wave of people that put their fingerprints and submitted the, you know, their powers of attorney to the state of Colorado and all that other stuff to get those first licenses that were medical that might be stuck as mom and pops. And I hope they don't just get washed out with, with pharmaceuticals. At the same time, if there is big pharma and they are making advancements and they can make better Alzheimer's drugs and, and better cancer treatments with cannabis, why would I not want them to do that? I mean, my, my grandmother passed away from complications with Alzheimer's. My father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He passed away last summer. You know, my, my other grandmother had Parkinson's. I mean, these are things my, my stepfather is living with cancer right now. I mean, that's like everyone in my family. I just, right. If, if so, if big, if Merck or Bristol Myers Squibb or one of these companies that we like to vilify as a society is able to put 500 million into research and, and grow THC out of yeast and put it into a thing that, that helps these guys. I mean, passionate or not, like, who am I to stand in the way of that? And I'm not so self-righteous to say that, you know, that those people shouldn't benefit too. But I, I am also cognizant of the fact that a lot of people took those first steps and are going to just get mauled over uh, when that wave comes and they're going to lose everything because they tied it all up. And those are the ones, frankly, they're going to be stuck with all the 288E taxation once the feds fix that. And then all the big companies are rolling in too. So it's, it's kind of one of those ones where the, you, you duck the first wave and then three waves hit you. And the truth is that there's going to be a lot of early entrepreneurs and movers that are just going to get buried and pinned to the bottom of that thing and never make it out. And that sucks. There's no doubt, but it's the truth of where we're at. Do you think that 280E is what has prevented maybe some of these, you know, multi-billion dollar corporations, alcohol companies, things like that from getting into some of these more mature no, markets? No, I don't, I don't think that 280E really weighs on them at all for the amount of money that they would spend and put into that versus the capital outlay, especially the, the valuations on, you know, the, the stocks at this point. Um, I, I really don't think that that is 
the issue. I think, you know, there's probably a handful of issues. Some of them are worried about, you know, brand tainting and what does their community, how much of their sales are in the Bible belt. And, and the, you know, if, if something comes out and they're public and they need to be, you know, disclosing this stuff, I think there's some banking and credit card and, you know, FinCEN type stuff that probably keeps some out. But, you know, when you're looking at Colorado, why aren't the pubcos here? Well, it's because Hickenlooper, you know, said no. I mean, flat and flat out. I mean, I understand why in 2010, you know, when the regulators were talking to everybody, why they didn't want outside and public money and that stuff, because we were one of those first movers. But by the time two, three, four states had gone after us and they had allowed out of state investment and public company investment and such like that, and Colorado just you know, stood the ground and said, nope, we can't do it. It's the federal government. You know, it was just a, a cop out. And I think it was a way for uh, some people in, in power to try to keep uh, the industry in Colorado uh, under wraps and under their thumb. Um, but I think Mr. Polis is, um, you know, quite aware and, and where things are going this November. Uh, I think you'll see a giant wave. Uh, it's been a disservice to a lot of of folks out there that that you know were able to put in their first fifty or a hundred thousand dollars and get a dispensary open, and you know there was only a certain amount of of independently wealthy people in Colorado that had an appetite for cannabis, and those people invested in certain companies, and you saw Livewell go through the roof, and you saw Native Roots go through the roof, and you saw other companies that were able to to put in and have that kind of of cash and capital. But if you didn't have access to that person and once the appetite for Colorado kind of got invested into other places, you watch these other states, you know, the Johnny Come Latelys, be able to go to a fund that's based out of San Francisco or New York or Delaware or Connecticut and bring in $50 million. And the, the folks in, in Colorado that had, you know, bootstrapped up to three, four dispensaries, they just didn't have the ability to, to do that. And um, I am very glad and hopeful um, you know, that that some of that capital and come in and reward some of those good, hardworking people that that did make it through the fight. On the flip side, I'm sure there's plenty of people that would take issue with what I just said that are longtime activists and being like, nope, they're going to come in here and they're going to steamroll everything. Well, that's the other side of the coin. And I, you know, again, it's back to what I said, like, what's the reality? There are going to be some good people that are going to get screwed in this. And there are going to be some good people that are going to get their final saving graces and be able to compete and keep the heart of this industry from 2009, 2010 in Colorado alive, you know, but as with anything, you, you swallow some good, you get a little bad. And, you know, I'm not the arbiter of that, but that's what I see happening. So, I mean, you're you're very well spoken, very very super intelligent guy. T tell me about moving from being a cannabis lawyer to becoming a CEO, and and what some of those challenges were, and and how having you know that legal experience and that legal mind give you a leg up. Um, you know, it's a good question. I appreciate the compliments. I'm I'm just a guy out here learning on the street with everybody else. I I don't think there's anything special about me except like I, I, I care. Well, you know, I went to, I went to law school. I was very lucky. My my dad paid for my undergraduate uh, degree, so I didn't have loans like a ton of other people did. So I was able to take my loans and and put them towards law school. Had I had full four student, you know, four years of student loans for undergrad. I'm not sure I would have been able to to stomach taking more of that. So, you know, it's I was blessed to be where I was at and and you know for the the things that came my way and you know CU accepted me and and I you know, I love learning. I'm good at school, you know, probably better at school than I am at business, to be frankly. Uh, but, I, you know, at the end of the day, the difference for me coming out of the, the law is it was all about me, you know, and I heard a long time someone wise told me there are two types of people on earth. There are people who are the gift and there are people who build and share the gift. Those are the two gift givers in the world. And I think to be perfectly honest, I'm more situated on I'm the gift and and that not to be conceited that's not what that means what that means is I like to be with people when I'm talking to somebody, standing up for them, inspiring them, um, asking them questions, getting them motivated, helping them get feelings into words and action stuff. 
I feel like my cup is full. They are shining and, and bright and filling my cup up. And there's just a lot of spark and fun and energy. And that is very easy to do when you're an attorney working with somebody and it's a one-on-one relationship. And it's just a, a, a really brilliant time and moment. And most attorneys aren't good attorneys if they don't get off on that and that they're not somebody that, that really appreciates and understands that. On the flip side, becoming a CEO, I needed to figure out how to both give that to each employee and partner that I worked with, which now was spreading me thin. And at the same time, give that to the entity itself, which was trying to build something of its own to give as a gift. And so for me to be able to manage my own personality and the things that that made me feel good and make me want to wake up and and do more and and be a positive contributor and then to also keep my eyes on the prize of but my company is making a promise to give the gift. One time it was consulting services, operational contracts and now an actual good balancing that and hiring and finding people ultimately replacing myself as the CEO of Shift uh, with a, a wonderful gentleman, uh, Edwin Fowler, and moving myself to the chief strategy officer where I could go back to tribal building and product building and make sure that my brand promises were being met. Because managing both of those things was was very, very intense. And in fact, I thought about, you know, uh, once you have a, a JD, you can, you know, go back and teach and it qualifies you from some things. And whenever this cannabis thing is is said and done for me at whatever stage that happens, I want to go back and teach future entrepreneurs about those lessons of, you know, what you have inside yourself and how to scale through that culture and the pith. I've made so many mistakes, Tim. I have had people that I loved dearly uh, work with me and for me that I couldn't make good on Um, you know, ideas that we shared together, because there simply wasn't enough of me. And it was painful for them. And it was painful for me. And those are things that sometimes you have to cut ties and, and move forward and, and do all of these things. And it's very hard to keep, you know, you can't have sacred cows and you start with a room full of sacred cows. And how do you navigate that? It's, I'll tell you what, there's no shortage of the need for mentors to, to walk that through. And I've had a good amount uh, from my time uh, help me and, and I'm learning every single day. I'm 41 years old and I feel like, you know, I know nothing. Um, that's, that's how I feel every, every morning I wake up. It's a very Einsteinian thing to say, you know. <laughs> I don't know. But I, all I know is what, what I know is the truth. That's, I mean, at the end of the day, my wife is such a wonderful person. She's, she's deadly honest with me, a very strong Jewish woman who just speaks her mind and runs my house and my family. And I am a cog in her world. Trust me on that. And, you know, she is one of the brightest people uh, in my life, but just a great mirror. And I can tell you for as many lessons as she still tries to teach me, I am certain that, uh, that I don't know much yet. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you talk about, you know, sort of the your contributions and, and, you know, the promise of, of your company. T- tell me about the Safe Roots Foundation. What do you do there? Oh, Safe Roots, a couple of great guys, uh, Ethan Zone and, and uh, Kirk Friedrich. Um, these two guys, you, the, the cannabis community will hear plenty more about Ethan and some things that he's doing. Uh, he was one of the gentlemen that that first uh, won one of the first survivors and then ended up getting diagnosed with cancer and making it through and just an absolute inspired uh, life and person. And these two gentlemen had played professional soccer, ended up playing together various places. But in Africa, they saw uh, what HIV was doing. Uh, they told me something ridiculous, like while they were in uh, I don't want to butcher the country. I can't remember which country it was. I want to say Ethiopia, but that might not be right. Um, but I believe it was a, an Eastern um, country. And they said something like 30% of the adults that were living there while they lived there had funerals. Like every weekend was just the whole town was cruel. And they realized that it was taboo to talk to the kids about sex and condoms and this stuff. And they're just like, 
who do they trust? And of course, you know, soccer football over there was such a big thing. And so they put together this, this grassroots foundation that was helping coaches and teachers who, you know, some of the most influential people in my life uh, were teaching me soccer and football and hockey uh, as a kid in, in Colorado and Wyoming. And so these guys did that uh, and and really made a huge impact. And they ended up working with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and a lot of stuff. Well, they saw cannabis as a way to get into something that we don't do a very good job of in the United States, which is being honest with our youth about drug addiction and harm reduction. And that you know, as a parent for myself, I've got three kids. Uh, they all know the word cannabis. They know uh, marijuana. They know the difference between medical cannabis. They know the difference between recreational cannabis. They know what it smells like. They know what it looks like. They know what to do if they find it somewhere or if a friend brings it to them, just like they know with bleach, paint, power tools, knives, guns, anything else dangerous that is a tool and useful for one thing, but not for children uh, without super supervision or, you know, whatever the circumstances are. And so with all of that stuff said, they said, geez, cannabis is a topic that is hot that people are talking about. There is a change in how we're looking. We want to put some of our paradigm from this grassroots foundation and what we've learned. And we want to build safe roots, which can start talking to teachers and coaches and, and this sort of thing for children. You know, the reality is, and, and of course, it's a 21 plus market. The truth of the matter is, is I used cannabis before I was 21. I don't want my children to drink or use cannabis or do anything. In fact, I hope they go their whole life as sober individuals. Um, I don't think that that's reality. I've got three of them. Maybe one of them will choose to live a sober life. But I can tell you one thing, if they're 17 or they're 30 and they're out in a situation and somebody is peer pressuring them to slug the fifth of whiskey, to try this you know, line of cocaine or to smoke the joint, I want them to know the lesser of those things. I want them to be educated on harm reduction and, and what to do and how to do it. Um, and so when I talk to these two guys, they were just, they were preaching to the choir. And I was like, guys, I am in love with what you're talking about. And so we've got a couple of things going on. Uh, shift. We've looked at one going into uh, New Mexico, where we've got the dispensaries. Um, New Mexico in general has, uh, you know, a depressed economy. It's one of the poorest economies uh, in in the country. Um, it's got a lot of alcohol and and hard drug, methamphetamines, glues, paints, that sort of stuff going on. Um, you've got some cultural. Uh, clashes and issues going on in the state as well. And also Safe Roots uh, Kirk lives in Albuquerque. So it looked like just one of those, oh man, no brainers. Let's put these things together. And that's something that we're working on um, together and trying to uh, get more cannabis companies and other sponsors to get that up off the ground and, and going. In addition, in Colorado, um, and one of the things that Shift is going to support financially as well is uh, there's a, a communities that care program that is about you know youth uh, prevention and and harm reduction and there is uh, a communities that care a chapter out in Ridgeway, Colorado, which is uh, out by Telluride, you know, sort of in the Durango area where we have uh, one of the, the companies that I own is uh, called Dalwini, and we're, we're building a, a luxury cannabis company on this beautiful ranch, and I can explain part of my normalization push there. Um, but that brand where we have cultivation, where people are working, and there's, there's you know, a thousand people live in Ridgeway, and we're the second largest um, employer in the county. And once we have our greenhouse open, uh, we'll probably be the largest, even above the school district. And so we feel like it's really important to be involved out there. So we're, we're looking at that. Kirk is coming up next week to, to talk to that group and see if this is one that Safe Roots can support and make grants for. So ultimately, Safe Roots wants to be collecting uh, nonprofit funds and distributing them back out into some instances, its own uh, sports education programs, and in other instances, other community programs that have similar missions that uh, the money can can work with because 
um, you know, especially, you know, some of the stuff that's coming out uh, over the next few months uh, from Ethan, which will be a, a national PR push. Uh, we believe that Safe Roots will be able to attract donors at a level that a lot of these local uh, community groups won't be able to. Uh, and that is, you know, certainly something that um, that, that Shift believes in and, and wants to be behind. So you're you're in Colorado. It's a mature market. You have children. Um, do you think that the Department of Health there? Uh, what, I should ask, what is the Department of Health doing in terms of harm? Is it a harm reduction, or are they doing more propaganda? You know, what are they doing in this regard? Yeah, I mean, some in both. And I again, it's it's intentions versus executions, and I don't want to, you know belittle any of the efforts at all. I, I do think I, there's some people have made a mockery of the, the good to know program. And there are some interesting propaganda points that I see on some of the public buses. And I'm like, I'm in the industry. I've known cannabis a long time. I don't even know what that sign means. Um, you know, and so there is some stuff there that, that I, I scratch my head and wonder why we're spending our money on it. Uh, but at the same time, there is also uh, a lot of the good programs. I think the good to know started with, you know, some of those unfortunate and terrible tragic accidents that came off of eating high dose edibles for people that didn't understand. And I know that whole wave that went through in 2014 and 2015, that was, you know, very sad for some very specific individuals. So I think that was a good part of the program. Um, but there are pieces of that program that is semi-propaganda, but is also very functional and useful uh, across the board. Um, but, you know, I what I see is a lot more of the local side. So, you know, sitting on the Boulder Marijuana, uh, Marijuana Advisory Panel for the last few years, uh, rewriting regulations, there were only three constituents from the industry on that inaugural uh, panel. And they had um, somebody from Boulder Valley School District. They had two uh, parents and community members. They had Boulder County uh, Health on there. We had to balance the advertising. So you can go in most of the states and you can do giveaways of stickers, not in Boulder County. You can't, you know, in the, the city of Boulder, I can't give stickers away at a dispensary. I can't do a buy one and get one for free. You can't give swag out for free. You have to sell it at cost. They don't want a proliferation of, of cannabis advertising uh, going out um, to to the youth. And they, and they feel like stickers are a youthful movement. And of course, one of the things is, is you've got, you know, this giant university sitting here and, you know, three out of the four years at university and the undergraduate, you're, you're probably too young to be a participant in the, the, you know, the recreational program. And so there's been a lot of push in that regard, which has been probably good for the community, but it's been tough for businesses because the competitors get to do that. Um, it's also, um, frustrating when you walk into a bar. I mean, I, I frequent Avery Brewery. It's by my house. It's here in Boulder. And I walk in there and they've got, you know, two month old onesies with Avery logos all over it. And I'm like, you can dress your kid up in beer outfits all day long and take your kid to Coors Field, but I can't hand out stickers. You know, yeah, it's asinine. But at the same time, um, it's really hard pressed when you look those people, this gentleman, Heath Harmon, one of the, one of the best guys I know, um, we both have diabolically different views of what we want out of the cannabis industry. However, sitting at that table, we've become good friends and we respect each other. And the truth is, in a community, back to my point about entrepreneurialism, you can't just do it's all for me. You have to be thinking about your community. And when you see a guy like Heath that's talking about real statistics that really cares about the youth in his community, and he's making bona fide statements, I can't hold him accountable for the alcohol industry. I can't hold him and blame him for some other laws that are hypocritical. I have to take him at face value and say, you're right. You, you are making something, you're making a statement that that is logical to me, that makes sense that we should consider these things. And so, you know, I recommend for for as many people as they can to, to become a part of these political committees um, where you're forced to work with not just politicians, but stakeholders in the community that see things differently than you. And one of the most unique parts about the Boulder Marijuana Advisory Panel is that when the city council um, gave it authority, 
they, you know, they didn't say that we had to come back unanimous, but we determined in our very first meeting that we were not going to put forward any recommendations to that council that weren't unanimous. And to this day, that advisory panel has never taken a vote. If it's not unanimous, we haven't moved forward. We've figured out how to um, you know, come to a consensus and then make our recommendations. And that process in itself would be great for our society. Forget cannabis, forget anything else. When you, in, in today's, <laughs> you know, spectator sport, I mean, when did politics stop being a, something that you do yourself and becomes a spectator sport? Like you're rooting for your local football for team. Real. Uh, I, I could sit here and talk to you for another hour. Uh, but we, we are running, a bit long uh, but before we go i want to get your advice for uh, other entrepreneurs interested in uh joining the cannabis space well i'll tell you right now um the the biggest piece of advice that i would give uh, is is the piece that i would go back 10 years and and give myself which is can't, with anything it always says well when opportunity knocks that is horseshit you are going to have so many opportunities knocking all day long. It is about weighing those opportunities and staying focused. Cannabis is just a, a microcosm of that and a lens that has magnified that to a degree that you could quite easily build a business plan that makes you doing be, you know, everything, being everything for everyone. It would be so easy in cannabis to get caught in that trap. And what I would say today when, especially in Colorado and the new states that are allowing you to specialize is, you know, take your 10th draft of your business plan and cut that in half. One simple, specific thing, and just go at it wholeheartedly, even if you've got opportunity thrown at you every day, all day for the next five years, stay laser focused. Um, you know, and, and that, that's, that's my best advice right now in the cannabis industry for a newcomer. Really great conversation. Um, could you tell us where we could find out more about you and uh, Shift? Yeah, you can go to uh, shiftcannabis.com or shift.cannabis at Instagram. We've got a lot of pages up there for all of our so-called shift mates. And, um, you know, that's we've got phone numbers on there for the sales team. There's 40 or 50 dispensaries around the metro area and the, the mountain area where you can find our products, but uh, feel free to send us an email, info at Shift Cannabis. Uh, it comes to my desk. I respond to every single one or I put it in touch with the, the right people. We're not shy. We're here to talk. We're here to help. Uh, we want to be a part of the solution in the future. Travis Howard, the founder of Shift, a serial entrepreneur, uh, really great guest. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Travis. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm honored. Thank you for having me on here and for giving us all a platform to share. Appreciate you. Thank you. You can find more episodes of the Gontrepreneur.com podcast in the podcast section of Gontrepreneur.com and in the Apple iTunes store. On the Gontrepreneur.com website, you will find the latest cannabis news and cannabis jobs updated daily, along with transcripts of this podcast. You can also download the Gontrepreneur.com app in iTunes and Google Play. This episode was engineered by Trim Media House. I've been your host, TG Brandfault. Thank you.